Hello, my name is Vicki Sparrow, and I welcome you on behalf of the Saints Network to this latest installment of Voices. I've been thinking about this present climate that we're living in where people are devoting themselves to causes of every nature. Um, those causes are noble in some instances, and in others they're quite vile. And, and where there's also this constant affront against the devotion that we offer to the ways of God. And I thought in the midst of this, it would be good to revisit a word in Scripture that addresses that for us. And that's the word chayil. Now, this word chayil is most often recognized from the passage in Proverbs 31.10, where it describes the function of a virtuous individual. Who can find a virtuous woman, a chayil woman? for her price is far above rubies. You know, this question was posed to Solomon by his mother Bathsheba as she instructed him about the burden of God's vision for his life. And understandably, she wanted a lifetime partner for her son who was devoted to God's ways in the same fashion that she hoped Solomon would be. And this was more than likely not only a personal desire of hers for her son, but one for his impending position as king of Israel as well. Although this verse does mention a woman, the essence of this concept is speaking, just as it did when God provided Eve for Adam, of an individual who were served side by side with others who were serving the same purpose. It's speaking of those who will support the same objectives and protect the same intents as each other. Bathsheba knew that God needed those types of individuals to partner with him, especially those that were positioned as kings in order to maintain and advance God's kingdom on earth. After all, Solomon's father, King David, had modeled this same type of devotion. And the rarity of finding such an individual, one who will dedicate all of their strength, all of their abilities, all of their functional efficiency, all of their resources, all of this to the restoration of God's intended order, and then to commit to that for the long haul, indeed makes him or her a tremendous treasure. This type of individual is committed to serving in this total way of investment, no matter how long it takes to reach the end goal, and no matter what occurs in the process. It's impossible to put a price tag of any sort on this type of individual because you can't simply purchase one. You can't entice someone to function in this sacrificial type of way by promising earthly gain of any sort, and you can't even secure someone like this by just wanting it badly enough. This type of devotion comes from the inside out in an individual, and when it's directed towards God, it comes only because there's been a deep relationship with and a pursuit of Him. We've seen this concept at work in a natural way within our own national history. I think the signers of the Declaration of Independence grasp this type of investment quite well, because the last sentence of that powerful document reads, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. As these early patriots affixed their signatures to that piece of paper, you've got to know that each delegate realized they were committed for the long haul, however it turned out. They were committed with everything they were and with everything they had. Sort of sounds like a first fruits type of thing, doesn't it? They were declaring their intent to restore the freedom of the citizens of America, and there would be no turning back. And as a result of that devotion, many of them lost everything, including their families and even their very lives, for the attainment of that goal. 
that was a rare individual indeed who would devote themselves in that way for such an earthly cause. So how much more of a rarity are those who would invest themselves totally in God's cause, who would invest themselves in God's eternal purpose? You know, when a chayil person is found, their treasured significance is truly beyond whatever is valued the most on earth, because they can easily be directed by the Father himself for whatever is needed in his ongoing plan of grace. And you can bet our Father certainly knows how extraordinary it is to find those who would invest themselves totally in carrying his burden of vision. What I'd like to look at for a few minutes today, though, is how this word kail is used in its first usage in Scripture. Because in this case, the personal devotion is not directed towards God and his intent. But instead, it's directed towards the enemy's objectives. You know, we know that the way a word is first used in Scripture sets a strong precedent for its application, as well as a spiritual platform to launch forth from. So let's just look and see what significance this may hold for us as those who are devoted to the ways of God. In Genesis 29, when where Hayel is first used, we see a particularly challenging and disturbing situation for Jacob and his family. You know, I, I know that when we think of Jacob and his offspring, almost always I think about first his 12 sons. But Jacob and Leah had a daughter as well, and her name was Dinah. This specific event that's spoken of in Genesis 29 occurred when Jacob and his family were living in Shechem, which was a city in Canaan. The king of Shechem was Hamor, who also had a son, Prince Shechem. I know, really original name there. And as kings and their offspring often do, they get whatever it is they want, whether it's theirs to legally take or not. In this case, that was Dinah. She was simply out with her girlfriends one day, and Shechem decided that he wanted her now. And so he took her and defiled her innocence. Of course, as though that wasn't bad enough, Prince Shechem decided he had to have Dinah permanently for his wife. And he begged his dad, the king, to make the arrangements with Dinah's father, Jacob. Meanwhile, word had gotten back to Jacob about this terrible thing that had happened, and it did so while Jacob's sons were all out tending herds in the fields. So scripture says that Jacob held his peace until his sons returned. Now this is much more than just not talking about this event. Jacob was devising a plan as to what to do about this terrible thing that had happened. Anyway, King Hamar discussed possible arrangements with Jacob and his sons, who by this time were quite angry because this deed had not only disgraced their family, it had brought disgrace to all of Israel as well. But you know, those boys must have had their poker faces on because Hamar seemed oblivious to the gravity of what had occurred. He just kept making the case for why Jacob's family should all be intermingling with his people through marriage. He was busy listing off all of the economic and social benefits that would result from such unions. Bottom line, Hamar wanted Jacob's agreement that Dinah could marry his son, no matter what it cost him. Now, if you remember how this played out, Jacob's sons basically set Hamar and the men of Shechem up. They convinced them that the only way the people groups could intermarry was for all of their men to be circumcised as Jacob's family had been. And Hamar readily agreed to this, thinking that their people would be the big winners in this deal because of all of the wealth that would be incorporated into their community from the Israelites. So on the third day of recovery from that procedure, when all of the men of Shechem were incapacitated, Simeon and Levi went through the town 
slaughtering every last one of the Shechemites, including Hamar and his son, Prince Shechem. Then they took their sister back home, along with the enemy's flocks, their herds, and as verse 29 says, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. The word wealth in this verse is this word, kael. The stuff that Simeon and Levi took first was everything that had provided sustenance and livelihood for the people of Shechem. And then they took everything that the Shechemites had totally devoted themselves to fashioning. I imagine that a lot of those items were demonic idols. But regardless, these things represented the strength of the Shechemites, their various abilities, and the efficiency of how they operated as a people as well as their resources. With these treasures, the people of Shechem had dedicated themselves to making a bigger and better version of themselves among the Canaanite communities, and they were going the distance in their devotion to this plan, as evidenced by King Hamer's uh, previous words to convince the townspeople to be circumcised in verse 23. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. So we see that Hamer had his sights set on not only increasing the value and holdings of Shechem through intermarriage with Jacob and his kin, by taking on all that the Israelites had accrued as theirs, but they also hoped to stop the Israelites from moving forward from this point in their mandate from God to subdue the nations. They hoped that Jacob and his clan would simply settle and be satisfied and comfy in this place. And I'm sure that within that plan, the enemy intended to redirect the chayil of Jacob's immense family toward demonic pursuits. Now, I don't know what Jacob's plan would have been to deal with this situation. Maybe he was thinking the very thing that his boys came up with, but he simply left it up to them to implement. Or maybe he was still continuing to think about it to the point of doing nothing. You know, indecision is a decision. But whatever the case, Jacob realized that this action that his sons had taken was really going to stir some things up in that region with her enemies. And he knew that not only were he and his family outnumbered, but pretty much their days were outnumbered as well if they remained there. So, in the midst of all of this turmoil, God directed Jacob and his clan to return to Bethel and make an altar there. If you remember, Bethel was where Jacob ran to avoid being killed by his brother Esau. But it was also where he encountered God in a dream and was shown God's plan for his life, one of ever-deepening intimacy with God's heart so that he could fulfill new points of expansion that were in God's heart and part of his plan. And altars are always about remembering what God has sown into us or done in us and then offering ourselves as a sacrifice in order to fulfill that developing identity. So regardless of what we may think of this rather unorthodox and distasteful manner in which Jacob's boys overcame the enemy— this was a point of breakthrough over the enemy's devotion to his own Kail. In this extremely challenging situation, where the enemy's capabilities and resources were being showcased, there was a critical moment of self-assessment and submission needed by God's people in order for them to enter into the next new thing of God's heart. And that certainly wasn't going to happen if they remained in Shechem. And in order to prepare themselves to be drawn deeper in their relationship with the Father, there's some things that had to happen. They had to put away strange gods. Jacob's family had literal idols they'd acquired from the spoils that they had to hand over to Jacob for burial. You know, in the midst of our warfare, 
It's easy to acquire things that can sometimes be more aligned with our iniquities than with our spiritual identities. The profane, false, and threatening influences around us can begin to sway our perspective more than the expectancy of meeting with God and expanding our trust and confidence in Him and what He sees on the horizon. They were also asked to make themselves clean, to examine their own motives against God's truth so that they could come into the presence of God with pure intent. It can be so easy to become diluted by the contaminated objectives of others or to just become bogged down with life itself and grow lethargic in our passion. This self-examination against the truth that Father has sown into us is always a necessary thing. And finally, they were directed to change their garments, to fully submit themselves to the identity that God had ordained for them in order to ensure that they were functioning from who God said they were now. And part of God's provision, after all of this had occurred, and they were obedient to this, was that God placed fear on all of the surrounding nations so that his people could return to Bethel without threat or harm. So the enemy enemy was literally held at bay following this time of victory, and subsequently um, God's people submitted. And this is the pattern that God has established following our victories as well. Whenever the enemy's kail to his plan is overcome, there should always be a time of personal assessment considered so that we can move deeper into our Father's heart. This is critical in order to partner with Him in the expansion of His plans and to partner with Him in the greater works. We've had many victories over the years, but know that there are many more yet to come. You know, in the shadow of overcoming and breakthrough, Bethel beckons us, where we enter into a new and fresh facet of commune with Elohim and where we receive the impartation of his heart and passion for the next measure of direction in his plan. I really believe that this first usage of chayil here in Genesis is very important to being that virtuous individual spoken of in Proverbs 31, because it's this continual return to the deeper chambers of God's God's heart, where our identity is expanded, where our strength is renewed, where our abilities are revitalized, and where our efficiency and how we function for the kingdom of God is increased. I know that we all want to fulfill everything that God has ordained for us to do in our lifetimes, and I'm thankful that in the midst of this very troubling situation in Scripture, God reminded us of how important our devotion as His sons is to Him, and of how rare we are in the sight and heart of our Father, and that in the midst of victory, how critical it is to always examine who we are against the light of his fresh word so that we can continue to function in the ever-deepening ways of God. I just speak blessings on every one of you. And until next time, goodbye.